to do? What's love got to do? And we, we talked about how as, uh, as believers in Jesus Christ, our, our purpose, our mission here on earth is to fulfill the two great commandments, isn't it? To love God and to love your neighbor. And we said that among other things, love is patient and love is kind. And we also talked about how love is servant-hearted and love is sacrificial. It's something that's going to cost us. And we looked at the principles of that. And we also talked about the importance of understanding that we are loved. God loves each and every one of us. And it's important to grasp hold of that truth if we're going to do anything in life. Because we need to know that we're loved so that we can then love others. Because it's out of the abundance of God's love for us that we can then pour that out onto those around us. So we looked at that as well. And so essentially we kind of came to the point of understanding that we need to be love in action. We need to be love in action. We can't just feel loved and and that's enough. We can't just accept God's love and and then sit there feeling content with ourselves that God loves me and and that's okay. We, We then need to turn that love into an action. We need to go we need to meet, we need to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus and, and share his love with those around us. So this morning, I want to kind of follow on from that theme a little bit, and I want to ask the question, what does it really look like to love our neighbor? What does it look like to love our neighbor? And the, the title of the message this morning, if you're making notes, is who are they going to call? Who are they going to call? So who do people turn to, though, when they're in trouble? Who do people look to when they're in need? When, when people have something that they, they can't deal with themselves, who is it that they look to? Where, where is it that they turn to? Who do they cry out to when they're in need? Is it the police? Is it the council? Do they go to Citizens Advice Bureau? Do they turn to family, friends? Do they come to the church? Are we an answer to that call? I think it's an important question to to ask ourselves and and I believe and and if you spend any time within the scriptures you'll recognize that we as individuals and we as the church need to be the answer to that call we need to be the response to that call when people are in need when people are in crisis when people are in trouble we need to be the answer to that call I need some help can they turn to the church can they turn to us as Christians. And you know that phrase, to love your neighbor, is actually in the Bible nine times. Not once, not twice, but nine times. Loving your neighbor is a principle that is so important to God that not only did he repeat himself, he made it a commandment. He commanded us to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor. And it's not just one of a, of a list of commandments. It's not like, here's a hundred commandments and you'll find at 87, love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the two commandments that Jesus says covers everything from the, the law of Moses and from what the prophets commanded. One of two things, to love God and to love your neighbor. So this call, this principle, this command on our lives to love our neighbor is vitally important to our lives as Christians. In fact, I would say it's the keys to heaven, and we're going to look at that in our passage this morning. James calls it the royal law. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It's the royal law. 
And I think it is beautiful when we actually live it out as a commandment in our lives. But loving your neighbor as yourself isn't always easy. I don't know about you, but I think it's probably something that we all struggle with from time to time because, you know, we have to be intentional about, about carrying this out. It's not something that, that all of us can do naturally. It doesn't come naturally to, to all of us to, to go out there and to make connections and to, to speak to people and to love on people and to meet their needs. Some of us need to actually be intentional and, and make conscious decisions to actually go out there and to love on our neighbor. Now, my neighbors growing up, I lived in the same house on 24 Willows Avenue in, in Lytham St. Anne's since I was two until I moved out when we got married with a little bit of living at uni and so on and so forth. But most of my life, I lived in the same house. And as far as I can remember, we had the same sets of neighbors on either side. On the one side, we had the Greens, and on the other side, we had the Seniors, and they played an important part in my life growing up. You see, the Greens, uh, my parents were better friends with the Seniors than with the Greens, and that's okay to have better friends than, 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 than some of your neighbors. But the Greens, they, they, were, they had a, a son of the, he was a year older than me, so we were similar age. So I would hang out with him, we would play. He had the cool computer games. So I had like the, the, the very old, we, we got a Nintendo Entertainment System, the first Nintendo games console about five years after it came out. That's where we were at in our kind of computer gaming. They had the latest. So I would go and hang out with, with Jimmy Green, Jimmy the Riddle as we called him, and we would hang out together. And, and when I went to their house, it was cool because he had a playroom and, you know, it had the latest games consoles. And when I was there, I got to drink Coca-Cola. They always had Coke in the house. In the Filmer household, it was for special occasions. You could have a glass of Coke, you know, on your birthday, Christmas, and maybe at a weekend. But in the Greens, it was free-flowing. And that is where my love for Coca-Cola came from. That's just a little, little tidbit for you there. Not only was it... Computer games and Coca-Cola, he played Warhammer, so I got into, into board games and all that kind of thing. He loved the turtles. I remember one Christmas, his mom knitted me a turtles jumper. Michelangelo emblazoned on the front. I wore that with pride. <laughs> Good times. So that was the greens. In fact, you know when things happen in life and you remember exactly where you were in that moment? Who can tell me exactly where you were when Princess Diana died? I can tell you where I was. I was at the Greens' house. My parents, believe it or not, were on their anniversary break in Paris where she died. And we got the news that morning because I'd stayed over at their house that it had happened. And so I remember vividly where I was when that happened. I was at my neighbor's house. I was at the Greens'. And then on the other side, we had the seniors. Now, they were lovely people. These parents are cool parents. You know, some parents are a little bit old and a little bit tired the seniors, they were cool. So, I mean, even now, they're still really cool. We, I went, I'm trying to think when we saw them last. We were at a celebration a few years ago for my parents' birthdays and anniversaries, and they were there, and they were telling me, oh, yeah, we just went to see Muse in concert the other week. Now, I love Muse. So the fact that these parents who were, like, in their 60s were going to see bands that I like, you're cool guys. I can get on well with you. So they were my neighbors on the other side, and and their son, he was a bit older than me. He got me into BB guns, so I appreciated that. They had a climbing wall on the side of their house, so that was pretty cool too. 
And in fact, I, uh, I went to stay with them while my parents went over to visit my, uh, my granddad in South Africa um, when he wasn't doing so good. And so I stayed at their house and they brought me tea in bed every morning. That was great. I'd not been used to that kind of lifestyle for some time. So I liked the seniors. And while I was there, they taught me the secret to making the best roast potatoes. And that secret, I'll tell you if you ask me later, I still use to this day the best roast potatoes because of my friendship with my neighbors, the seniors. But, you know, we look to this challenge of loving our neighbors, don't we? And, and it doesn't mean to love the, your next-door neighbor specifically. Definitely love your next-door neighbor, no matter who they are. But it, that's not what it's saying. It's not saying my love needs to pour out of you into your next-door neighbor. So we're going to look this morning at the question, who is my neighbor? So why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 10. It's a really well-known portion of scripture, but we're going to dig into it anyway. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's in Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret the law? And so this lawyer said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Those right there are the keys to heaven. Do this and you will live. But he then tries to justify himself and he said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And so Jesus being Jesus, he doesn't answer straight. He tells him a story and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among some robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I'll repay when I come back. So Jesus asks the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer replies, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's interesting in this passage that, that the, the lawyer tries to justify his response by, by asking a question to Jesus. You see, a religious spirit always tries, always has a focus on self. A religious spirit is always focused on what do I need to do? What do I need to do? How do I need to tick the boxes, what, what do I need to do in order to earn my way into heaven? But grace, the gospel, a relationship with Jesus declares it's already done. It's already finished. He's already done the work 
for us. So he poses the question, who exactly is my neighbor? That's the question he wants to drill down into when he's, he's questioning Jesus. Who exactly is my neighbor? You see, he wants to ascertain exactly what he needs to do in order to get into heaven. He's saying, who is it that I need to love so that I can get into heaven? Because I want to make sure I'm loving the right people. I want to make sure I'm doing the things that I need to do to earn my way into heaven. I want to make sure that my love counts. I want to make sure that it counts, that it, that it ticks the box. So he asks the question, who is my neighbor? Because if they're not my neighbor... If they're not my neighbor, then I'm not going to waste my love on them. I'm going to make sure I'm loving the right people to tick the right boxes. So he's asking, who is my neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Are the homeless my neighbor? Are the poor my neighbor? Are sinners my neighbor? Are people from other religions or races or social backgrounds my neighbor I just want to know who is my neighbor what do I need to do to get into heaven but classic Jesus you ask him a question he tells you a story it's like this guy who got beat up on a road and got left for dead he's a guy who now seriously needs some help and and a priest walks by. Now, I believe that the priest represents a response that says, that's not my problem. The priest represents a response that says, that's not my problem. That's not my problem. And I think often we can pass by problems that we have the answer to, and yet we say, that's not my problem. That's not my problem. But the reality is that a priest's job his role in life is to serve people. The priest's job is to help people. And he walks along the street in this story and he sees a man desperately in need of help. That's his job, to help people. But he walks on by and he says, that's not my problem. In fact, I can imagine that he probably went through a process in his mind of justifying it to himself as to why it was okay for him to walk on by. I don't have enough time. I'm in a rush to get to where I want to be. I'm, I'm way too busy to stop and, and to help this man. I didn't cause that mess. It's not my fault that that happened. That's not my problem. And I pray, I pray that we as a church will not become a people that walk by difficult situations and justify it to ourselves by saying that's not my problem I didn't cause that situation so I don't need to get involved just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your problem just because it's not your fault doesn't mean it's not your problem and so Jesus continues with this story it's not just a priest who walks by then a Levite comes down the street and he sees what's going on and he too walks on by. So what is a Levite? Well, a Levite is an assistant to a priest. That's their role. It's to assist and to help the priest. 
So I think that the Levite represents a response that says, I'm not qualified. I'm not qualified to get involved in this situation. I'm not qualified to solve this problem. That issue is above my pay grade. That's a priest's problem right there. So I'm just going to walk on by. But you see, both of these two men, they carry a title. Both of these two men, they carry a title, a priest and a Levite. Now, typically, a title indicates what you specialize in. An indica- a title describes what it is that you do, doesn't it? Think about it. A lawyer interprets the law. The police enforce the law. A plumber works with pipes. A carpenter builds stuff. A chef makes food. A lawyer, a politician, always tells the truth. You know, a title, your title is attached to your task. Your title is attached to your task. And these two men, a priest and a Levite, their title meant to help people. Their title meant to help people. And yet in this story, they walked on by. You see, if you're unwilling to fulfill your task, don't carry the title. If you're unwilling to fulfill the task, don't carry the title. You see, this is what's so powerful about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ. That's not his surname, that's his title, the Christ. It's not like, you know, I got a, I got a pizza for Christ, pizza for Christ. It's, a descri- it's, not a descri- it's not his surname, it's a description of who he is. And the Christ means saviour. The Christ means saviour. Jesus, the saviour, that's his title, that's his role, that's his task, that's his purpose. And you see, he gave everything in his life. He gave everything in his life to fulfil his purpose, to carry out the role that was attached to his title. Are you thankful this morning for a God who gave everything to fulfill the role of his title? He gave everything. He gave everything. He died on the cross to save you, to save me. He did everything he could to fulfill his title. It wasn't just some meaningless letters after his name, but a description of his character. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Savior. So here we've got a priest and a Levite, and their whole job, their title, their role is to help people. And here's an opportunity for them to fulfill that task. Here's a guy desperately in need of some help. He's at the side of the road. He's been left for dead. He's been beaten and broken and bruised and bloody, and they just choose to walk on by. That's not my problem. I'm not qualified to help out in that situation. And if we're not careful, we can start to look at our town and at our our neighborhood. And I think when you really look, you can see the problems that are around us. If you look in our town and in our neighborhood, you can see where the needs are. 
without a doubt. We've talked about this over the past few weeks, that, that loneliness, without a doubt, is the biggest need in our area right now. Loneliness is the biggest need, and it's a killer. You know, I said a few weeks ago that loneliness is as bad as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's how harmful it is to our health, and that's a real need in our town and in our community. And we've also talked about issues with, with mental health and things that are rife in this, in this neighborhood of ours, in this community. And when you really look, you can see the people that are hurting and the people that are broken and the people that are crying out for help. But you can begin to think to yourself, well, I didn't cause that mess. That's not my problem. I'm not qualified to, to deal with that. I'll just wait and leave it for, for someone else to come along and fix. Sometimes we can even ask, what, well, what's that got to do with me? I got my own problems to deal with over here. Why do I need to get stuck into to helping them? I don't have a clue how I would even start to helping them. You know, if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of, of telling ourselves that it's fine because someone else will come. Someone else will come walking down the street and see this need and help out. I'm just going to walk on by and leave that problem for someone else. But that's not the heart of God. And that's not the heart of this church. You see, we were put here on earth for such a time as this. This church is in this state with this leadership right here, right now, because we were here for a purpose. And our calling and our commission from God is to be a church that is needed by our community. We are not called to sit by and look at the issues in our neighborhood and say, that's not my problem. We have been put here to recognize the needs and the issues and the concerns and the cries for help that are going on just outside these doors and to do everything that we can to meet those needs. Because who are they going to call? They should call on us. We should be the first people responding to the cries for help in our neighborhood because that's who Jesus was. That's who Jesus was. So we look to him as our example and we recognize that he stepped in where others walked on by. So we need to be responding in the same way. We need to be reflecting the love that Jesus lived out when he was on earth. If we're going to carry the title of Christian, as a collective, if we're going to carry the title of church, then we need to have the, the, the responsibility and the willingness to live out what that means. You see, it's not just a club. We're not just Christians because we want God's love and, and I've got God's love and that's great, so I'm happy. We need to step out. We need to move out. We need to go into our communities and begin to be the hands and feet of Jesus because that's the call that is on our lives. It's throughout the scriptures that we need to not just receive from God but to pour it out into those around us, into those who need it the most. And my hope is that the highlight of our ministry here at Hope Church Lytham is not a Sunday morning service. 
You see, it's great to come to church and it's great as a collective to praise God and to give him the honor and the glory that he deserves. And it's great to come and hear a motivational message. But if if that's all this is about, then we've missed the point. We are falling so far beyond the mark. It's not true. If our main opportunity to minister people is here on a Sunday, then we're doing something wrong. Church is fantastic. I look forward to coming to church on a Sunday to be with my family, to praise my heavenly Father. Come to church. Be with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Get fired up. Get enthused. Get passionate. Get excited. But then go. Leave these doors and be the love of Christ in action to those in our neighborhood, because church isn't a building. We know that church isn't just four walls. We are the church, and the church is here to help people. The church is here to be the love of God in action. You know, we don't need to wait until Sunday to be servants in the kingdom of God. We don't need to wait until Sunday to be that. It's who we should be every single day of the week. We are called to be servants. It's the example that Jesus set for us throughout his ministry. You see, he was a servant leader. He didn't come to lead dictatorially. He didn't come to lead and tell people the way it was to be. He came to lead with a servant heart. He came to lead by lowering himself by washing his disciples' feet, by rolling up his sleeves and getting stuck in. We are called to be servants. It's who we need to be. Our ministry isn't here on a Sunday. It's when we leave this place. It's in our Monday. It's in our Tuesday. Don't carry the title if you're not willing to do the task. You see, we have a task. We have a calling. Each and every one of us here has a purpose on our lives to be the one who answers that cry. When our neighbors cry out, I need help, we need to be the ones who respond. We need to be the ones who respond. Are you catching this this morning? No? Come on, church. Come on. This is not just me talking at you and you falling asleep. We have to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Get excited about this. Get passionate about this. Because this is the call that's on our lives. We are not called to be here on a Sunday and leave and do nothing about it. We're called to step out of these walls and be Jesus in our communities, in our neighborhoods, to our friends, to our families. Get excited about this because if you're not excited about the passion, about the calling and purpose on your life, you may as well not be here. If we're not excited about the privilege that we have to be able to leave these walls and love on our neighbors, then we have so far missed the mark. We need to just slap ourselves around the face. Get excited. Get passionate. This is what our life is about We get to wake up in the morning and be excited about the fact that our job is to love people. 
I don't know if anyone's ever been in a job where you, where you wake up and you, you, just, you just dread getting out of bed because, because you don't want to go to work. I've been in that place before. It's not a pleasant feeling when you have to drag yourself out of bed and, and get dressed and, and drive to work and sit at your desk or whatever it is that you do and, and just kind of go through the motions. That is not a fun place to be, but I pray that we can be excited about the job that we have as Christians. I pray that we can be excited about the calling that we have as a church to be love in action, to be the answer to the cry, who will help me? Who are they going to call? Flipping us. So let's get excited about it, okay? (sighs) But Jesus, who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. It's like this traveler who gets beat up on the road and left for dead and a priest walks by and then a Levite walks by and you'd think that they would solve it. You'd think that they would be the answer to this call because that's their job. But they walk on by. And then a Samaritan comes along the road. Now, when Jesus said that word, Samaritan in this story. We got to remember that he's talking to an old Jewish audience right now. He's speaking to a, a Jewish lawyer. So when he said the word Samaritan, the atmosphere right there would have shifted dramatically. You would have sensed a, a recoil from these people. There would have been some clenching going on because Samaritans and Jews, they did not get on. In fact, they were enemies. The Samaritans were so despised by the Jews. They were looked down on. They were seen as lesser people in their eyes. So when Jesus dropped in that word, a Samaritan comes walking down the road, you would have sensed a change in their their posture. They would have started to get a little bit defensive. Okay, so I don't know why he's talking about Samaritans right now. Let's Let's hear what he's got to say. So when Jesus tells this story, he knows full well of the culture that he's in. He knows exactly what shock this is going to cause when he drops in that a Samaritan is part of this story. And so this Jewish man was beat up and left for dead at the side of the road, covered in blood, and and it's a Samaritan. It's a lower-class citizen. It's someone who all of you look down on. It's him who decides to step in. It's him who decides to cross over the road towards the Jew. It's him who decides to stop his own agenda, change his own actions, and head towards the Jew. And the scriptures say that he had pity on the man. The Samaritan came walking down the road and he had pity on the man. Now that wasn't just a, oh, look at that. That's, that's a real tough situation he's got himself in. Okay, I'm going to keep on walking right now. It's not that kind of pity. You see, pity, his, his pity, his compassion caused him to do something. He didn't just see something and feel a little twinge in his heart and then shove it back down and walk on. He allowed that emotion. He allowed that that feeling of pain 
to well up within him and cause him to, to do something, to cause him to stop in his tracks, to cause him to head over to the Jew and to begin to help him. And the Bible says that he begins to clean and bandage his wounds. And not only that, he puts him on a donkey and he takes him to an inn. And when he gets to the inn, he doesn't just leave him there. He continues to help this Jew. And then when he's, he's helped him kind of get, get to a place where it was okay to, to leave, he then reaches into his pocket and he hands over two whole days' wages to the innkeeper. It costs him something to help this enemy of his. And then he says to the, to the innkeeper, when I return, <coughs> when I return, I will help cover any extra costs that there may be to get him well again. You see, catch this. The Samaritan feels the pain of this Jewish man. He then focuses his attention on it by going over to him, by helping him, by bandaging him up. He then takes him to an inn and he funds what it's going to take to get him well again. And then he says, I will return and cover any outstanding debt. He's going to follow through on his actions. He feels the pain. He focuses in on it. He funds anything that it's going to take to get him well, and then he follows through. You see, I hope and pray that this church can be like that, that we can focus on the pain, that we can fund the needs, that we can follow through with the things that we say on a Sunday. I pray that we don't become blind and numb to the pain that's in our communities. You see, it's so easy for us to recognize the needs and then shove that emotion back down and hope that it goes away because I don't want it to cause me an inconvenience. You see, this Samaritan will have had a purpose for his journey. He wasn't just walking around looking for someone to help. He had a purpose. He had a goal. He had a journey that he was going on and he stopped in his tracks. He let it inconvenience him to go over and to help this Jewish man. So can we begin to feel the pain that is around us? Can we let it rise up within us? Can we let it cause a righteous anger within us? Can we focus on that to the point where it it turns us, turns our compassion into action. You see, we can't be everyone's answer. We can't do everything. There is a lot of need, even just here in Lytham St. Anne's, and we can't meet it all. Let's be real. But we can do something. We can't meet all of the needs, but we can do something. And I think some of us, we, we know that there's pain in our neighborhood. We know that there are problems and issues and concerns that are going on around us, even in our next door neighbors' lives. But we look at these problems and we think that they are so big and so overwhelming and so out of our control that we justify it within ourselves that it's too big for us to do anything about. So we shove it back down and we forget about it and hope that someone else will come along and do something about it. 
But that's not the heart of God. And that's not the heart of this church. We need to focus on the pain and the problems in our community. And I alluded to it a little bit last week when we talked about some of the things, some of the strategies we're going to be putting in place over the coming months to to start to meet those needs. So we're going to have a Christmas campaign where we're going to ask you to inconvenience yourselves, to reach into your pockets and to fund an outreach where we can bless the the lonely because there is loneliness on our doorstep and we can do something about it. And we talked a bit about what we're going to be doing with young people as well, opening up the, the church to provide a safe space for people to come and to hang out and then maybe we can speak some positivity in their lives. And that too is going to be something that we ask you to inconvenience yourselves with, whether that's in serving or whether that's in financing or whether that's in praying for. It takes more than just one or two to make a difference. It's going to take all of us And I pray that we, as we begin to share these strategies with you in detail, that you'll you'll get behind it, that you'll feel that pain, that you'll focus in on that need, that you will fund those, uh, those ministries and that you will follow through with the call on the life of this church. You see, we can become the inn. Hope Church Lytham can become the inn where broken and hurting people can be brought to to get well. That's not to say it can only happen within the four walls of this church, but I pray that this house can be a place of safety, can be a place of healing, can be a place of wellness, can be a place where people recognize that their identity is found in Christ because we love on them. And we love on them in a way that inconveniences ourselves. That we love on them in a way that is kind and a way that is passionate and a way that is patient and a way that is servant-hearted and a way that is sacrificial. It takes all of us to focus on the problems if we're going to make a difference. And so I pray that this is not just an encouraging message that is preached on a Sunday, but then doesn't go anywhere. I pray that you have heard the heart that is being poured out from the words that I am speaking this morning, that we need to be a church that follows through. You see, we can feel the pain and we can cry for our neighborhood, but if we don't follow through, then what does it matter? Because they don't feel our tears. They don't feel the pain that we're, we're feeling for them inside. They feel it, they recognize it, they notice it when we follow through, when we step out of these four walls and we begin to answer the call. So on a Monday, we're answering the call. On a Tuesday, we're answering the call. On a Wednesday, we're answering the call throughout the week, not just on a Sunday. So Jesus, he finishes the story and then not only does he, he answer the question with a story, he then flips that question right back to the lawyer. So which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor? Was it the priest who walked by? Was it the Levite who walked by? Or was it the Samaritan who stopped in his tracks, who inconvenienced himself to help 
this Jew broken and beaten at the side of the road. And he responds, obviously convicted, obviously challenged, and yet still can't get the word Samaritan past his lips. I suppose it was the one who showed mercy. Now go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Wow. Jesus is asked, who is my neighbor? And instead of answering directly, he paints this picture. He paints this picture of what love can look like. He paints this picture of who we are called to be. He paints this picture of what the title of Christian and the title of church looks like. And he says, now go and do likewise. So I pray this morning that we catch hold of that truth, that we can step out of these walls and, and actually begin to follow through with some of the stuff that we talk about and some of the stuff that we listen to on a Sunday. Why don't we pray? Lord God, I pray that when that cry comes from the hearts of our neighbors and our community and our family and our friends and those around us who are lost and broken and hurting, that we can answer that call and we can, we can be your love in action to those around us. Lord God, I pray for the boldness and the confidence to bring them into the presence of God, to bring them into safety, to begin to heal them, to begin to serve them, to begin to love them like you love them. And so I pray that you will teach us how to love like you love. Lord, I pray that we will know within our hearts and within our spirits that we know for absolute certainty how much you love us and I pray that that love will be so overwhelming it will be so vast in its quantity that it will pour out of us into those around us that we won't be able to contain it within ourselves we won't be able to be selfish in our nature and and keep it all welled up and, and blocked up within us but it will just burst out of us in everything that we say and everything that we do to the people around us who need your love the most. Lord God, I pray that we can be love in action because if we love like you love, we can change the world. Amen.